Amen. Amen. The King of the Jews. We have entered into our Advent season by asking ourselves with the psalmist in Psalm 24, who is this King of glory? We began our study last week on who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. So as we consider this this title of the King of glory, as we begin our study there, I'd like to ask the question, how does one become a king? What are the qualities of a good king? Now, I'm not sure if it's always true, but a king, first of all, has to have royal blood. We, we just heard from the wise men that Herod was appointed. But if I understand royalty correctly, there has to be royal blood involved. It has to be someone who has a traceable heritage of a royal family. When we lived in Romania... Uh, we learned a little bit about the royal family in Romania, and they were not Romanian by birth. Uh, the latest was King Mihai, who just died uh, a year ago or so. But in all the line of the kings of Romania, they all came from other parts of Europe. So in, back in the day, when, when Romania wanted a king, they went to the monarchies in, all of, in Germany and England and all the places that had kings already, and they brought someone to Romania to be their king. It had to be somebody who has a royal heritage. A monarch, a a king, must also be a leader that brings blessing and prosperity. They must bring strength to the role, and they must bring a positive reputation for their country in every aspect of kingdom life. A good king is someone who's seen as a, who has a benefit, a, a benevolent relationship with his people, with his subjects. And so we contrast that to the king that was just described to us, King Herod the Great, of the days of Christ's birth. He was appointed to rule in Jerusalem. And though he might have been successful in fulfilling his role, his relationship to the leaders and the people was difficult at best, as we saw described. He eliminated political enemies. He operated from a severe perspective of paranoia, killing family members. And he was the Herod who killed all the children and the sons under two years of age all for the sake of his paranoia. He had an obvious disdain for the people that he ruled. So for those who were looking for the coming king, the king of the Jews, the Messiah, for those who were looking, they didn't look at King Herod for that. He was never anticipated to be that ruler. But the question is, what did the people of Israel look for in their coming king? And how would they recognize the Christ? How would they recognize the Messiah that was promised by God. So this Advent season, as we consider the incarnation of Jesus Christ, an important element of his title is that of King of the Jews. Or, another way to say that is the Son of David. And as we look at their response to this king, we'll see our lives and our responses to this king lived out in their life. So turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 1, first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Now, each of the four Gospels is focused on a theme. 
is focused on an aspect of Christ that's geared for a particular audience and a particular message. And as Matthew writes his gospel, his desire, as he shapes the, the way he tells the story, the narrative of Jesus Christ, his desire is to show the people of Israel, that's his audience, that Christ is their king. So if you could, if you could write a, a theme or a subject over the whole book of Matthew, it would be Christ is the king of the Jews. Christ the king, the promised son of David. He opens the gospel with the claim that Jesus is the awaited son of David. Look at this, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, we have, we, at other times, we've spent time on the genealogy, and it's a fascinating study. When you, when you start doing the read the Bible through in a year plan that we talked about last week, and you get to the genealogies, don't be quick to say, good, a genealogy. I'm going to skip over three or four pages here. Don't be so quick. Because inside those genealogies is the story of God. And inside those lives represented in that genealogy, God is trying to tell us something. And that's what's happening here. God is telling us that the awaited king is, is the son of David. And by doing that, uh, look at verse 6. He brings out the idea that he looks at David the king. The only place in the genealogy that he gives that kind of a representation. David the king. Why does he do that? Because he points back to verse 1. He says, the son of David. There's the royal line. There's the heritage. The king that's coming is going to be the, the son of David. In chapter 2, the wise men come and they ask where the king of the Jews is born. In the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, Jesus fulfilled the prophecy that said the king would arrive seated on a donkey. And throughout the gospel, Matthew refers to the kingdom of God. And Jesus refers to his kingdom. And in the narrative of the trial of Jesus, Jesus is referred to as the king of the Jews several times. And finally, after opening the gospel of Matthew... After opening his gospel, Matthew says, this is the son of David. This is royalty. This is the king that you've been waiting for. And you go to the end of Matthew, Matthew 28. And what does Jesus say about himself? You remember? The very end of Matthew 28. I'll give you a clue. It starts with great commission. What does he say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Does that sound like a king? So David, or Matthew opens up with son of David, royalty, higher, a, a king, monarch. And at the end he says, all authority has been given unto me. That's the king of the Jews. King of the Jews. The king. Now let's look at this idea of the son of David. As Matthew opens up his gospel, he declares that Jesus is the son of David. I'll say it again. It's a direct reference to the royalty of Jesus, his kingship. The Jews of the day, the Jews of the day of Jesus would recognize that. The king that they expected would have a lineage, would come from a royal line. He would have to be traced back to the king of David, to King David. And the promise of the Old Testament that David would have his throne last forever. That his heir would sit on that eternal throne. 
And that fulfills the first expectation of the people. The Messiah must be a descendant of David. So Matthew opens his gospel, the genealogy of the son of David. From that would come the expectation that he would be a mighty warrior, just like David was, and he would, he would lead them out of bondage. He would he'd lead them into victory, and he would lead them into God's blessing, just as David did. But there's a second expectation that is just as critical. The king must be benevolent. The king must be merciful. The king must always be looking after the needs of his people. Often you see the, the, the title, Son of David, in the context of mercy. Several times in, in, the, in the Gospel of Matthew, you see, Son of David, have mercy on us. One of my favorites is, is Son of David, he, referring to Jesus, calling out to Jesus, Oh, Son of David, my daughter has need of you. My daughter has need of healing. Son of David, please come. And the more he displayed his power through healing, through teaching, through res- restoration, the more people wondered if indeed he might be the promised Son of David, the Messiah. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. We'll see an example. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed. And what was their response? And they said this, Can this be the son of David? Because they saw a merciful king. They saw a benevolent king. They saw a healing king. And over and over again, throughout his ministry, people wondered, is this the son of David? Now, we don't often focus on this. But I ask the question to myself, do we understand that Jesus Christ was Jewish? Well, of of course we do. But I want us to really think about that. Because we put him in our context, don't we? He's got white skin. He's maybe got, I don't know what color hair he's got. And all of his characteristics and mannerisms are all filtered through our, whatever heritage we have, whatever culture we come from. But Jesus was a Jew. I think we need to understand that Jesus Christ was the incarnation of God's plan, not only for the world, which we often think of, and not only for us, as we often personalize it and make it about us. But this is about God's plan for the people of Israel. God has a plan for the people and the nation of Israel. So let's look at that. Let, let's just take a review of that. I wish, I wish we had time to do a a whole history review of that and see God's amazing leading of the people of Israel all throughout history. Not the least of which is their miraculous birth in 1948 as a nation. I wish we could t- had time to tell all the stories and all the miracles. God is truly doing something with his people, Israel. But a common question regarding the people of Israel is, why in the world did God choose them? 
Out of all the people of the world, have you heard that question? Why did God choose them? I'm not sure that's even the right question. See, if you know about this, the story of the, the people of Israel, it's more about the God who chose than about those who were chosen. Let's look at Genesis chapter 12. Go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 12. You can't understand what God is doing in the world unless you know this passage. Now the Lord said to Abram, chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Before they were a people, they were birthed from a pagan man by the name of Abram. We know him as Abraham. God changed his name from Abram to Abraham. He was a pagan. Abraham, Abram was not a Jew. You see, God, God had a purpose and a plan for the people of Israel before they were even born. So we say, why did God choose them? Why did God look out over all the nations of the world and say, I'll choose them? Why did he do that? He didn't. He created them for his purposes. He made them for his purposes. God called Abraham apart, and he said what? He said, I will make you a great nation. I'll make you a great nation from him, from Abram, and for God. That nation didn't exist until God called them into existence for his purposes. And so from this passage, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, what are the purposes of the people of Israel, the nation of Israel? Uh, let me just give you three. First of all, he says, I will make you a great nation. I'll make you a great nation. He said, I will bless you. This is both personal and as a nation. It's, it's personal for Abraham himself, and it's, he, was all, he would also bless him as, he, as this nation comes from him. They were to be recipients of God's blessing. They were supposed to be the vessel where God would pour out his blessing. And what was the reason for it? What's the third thing? What's, why, did he pour out, why did he pour in the blessings to the people of Israel? Why was that his plan? So they would be a blessing. Just lock this phrase in your head. Blessed to be a blessing. It comes from Genesis chapter 12. Blessed to be a blessing. The people of Israel, the nation of Israel was always designed, was always in God's plan that they would receive God's blessing, that they would have a personal relationship with the living God and that they would pass it on to the nations of the world. And God says, all the nations of the world will be blessed by you. He said, I'm going to set you apart for my purposes and all the nations, and here's the, here's the test. The nations that bless you, I will bless. The nations that curse you, I will curse. You're it. That's, that's their role in God's plan. So you know the story. Abraham's family and, and the people began to grow. Leaders came along for the people of Israel. You, you know their names. Their names. 
Their names are Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, the judges. Various kings came along, Nehemiah, Ezra, prophets such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Elijah, and others. They all came to lead the people of Israel and to give a fresh word from the living God to the people of Israel. All through their history as a people, they followed God at times, but mostly, mostly they refused God's leadership. God called them a stubborn, stiff-necked people. They were his called-out people, but they wouldn't always listen, and they would seek their own ways. Instead of blessing the nations with the testimony of God, with the power and the wisdom of God, they chose to be like other nations, to blend in. We see it. When, when Moses went up on the mountain to, 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 to be with God and to receive the Ten, the, the ten Commandments, the law of God, when, when he was up on the mountain, remember what the people did? The people who were called of God, set apart for his purposes, set apart to be a beacon of hope and light to the world, what did they do? They said, as for this Moses guy, I don't know what's going on. He's been up there so long, we don't know what he's doing. So what did he do? Aaron, one of the leaders of the nation, said, bring me all your gold. Why? Because they needed to have somebody that looked like a king, that looked like a god. And what did, Moses, what did Aaron say when Moses came down the mountain and said, what are you doing? Well, I don't know. We threw all this gold in the fire and it came out looking like an idol. That's the people of Israel. Even at the mountain of the Lord, when the Lord was visiting with Moses, when the Lord was giving the law, when the, when the, when the presence of the Lord was visible with lightning peals and, and thunder, and even in that, present, in that presence of God, they still looked for another way. In all of this, in all of this history, one king stood out, David. And we know David's story. We know that he was flawed in very significant ways, that he, he fell on his face in ways that, that we hope to never even come close to. But King David was known for trusting God. King David was known for his faith, unshakable faith. And as a, as a king and as a military commander, God blessed his leadership. Israel prospered. He met the criteria of a good king. He was a conquering hero. He was a mighty warrior. He was benevolent. He was merciful. And God called him a man after his own heart. So faithful was David as a king that God promised that he would have a, an heir, that his throne would last forever. So when Jesus stepped into the arena, he came at a time of great oppression. The Roman Empire was, was all the known world at the time. They were, the, the heavy boot of oppression was on the people of Israel. Roman government was there everywhere. And the people were ready. They were anticipating. God, would you send us the son of David? God, would you send us our king, the long-awaited son of David? Would you please send him to us? And they were looking for a liberating warrior. So when Jesus started to show his power, the natural question was, is this the son of David? Write this down in your notes. 
Jesus is the king of the Jews. He came first, first of all to the Jews. Much of his earthly ministry was given to the Jews first. The focus of the Gentiles and the establishing of the church came later. His ministry, his early ministry, was focused on the Jews. And I, I can't help but think, when I, when, I, when I was thinking about this idea, I thought, well, that's what Paul did. That in, the, in the New Testament church, in, in the book of Acts, and all through the epistles, what do we see? Where did Paul go? Paul would come into a city. Tell me how he operated. Paul would come into a city. What did he do? He went to the synagogue. And then, usually after the Jews rejected him and his teaching, where did he go? He went to the Gentiles. You see the order? You see what's happening here? Romans 1.16, I believe in the power of God. What does he say about it? He says, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. There it is. There it is. Indeed, the son of David, the king of the Jews, was right there among them. And when Matthew opened his gospel with this title, he was telling them that Jesus was the heir of David. He was the son of David that they were waiting for. But you know how the story goes. In the, in the book of Matthew and the Gospels, we know that they rejected Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 12, if you would. Matthew chapter 12. We'll go back there again. We've already read verses 22 and 23. The people were amazed and they wondered if this wasn't the son of David. But listen to this. Verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, heard what? Heard them wondering about the son of David. They said, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. He's using the power of Satan to cast out Satan. The Pharisees were quick to step in and put an end to this thing because they didn't think this was the son of David. They didn't want this to be the son of David. They were quick, into step, quick to step into all this craziness and they came up with their own story that didn't fit anything. You see, Jesus didn't fit their idea of a Messiah or as a king of the Jews. He wasn't a warrior by their definition. Plus, he undermined their version of God's law at every corner. At every turn, Jesus was, was undermining the, teacher, the teachings of the Pharisees. And with all of that, he was undermining their authority as Pharisees, as religious leaders. He was undermining their authority. He was understanding, un- undermining their, their relationship with the people, their, their authority with the law. He was undermining their very way of life. And not only was he not the king of the Jews or the son of David, <coughs> but he needed to be stopped. He needed to be stopped. So they were determined in their, in their rejection of the king. So determined that they put forth just a, a silly argument. Jesus was casting out demons by the power of the devil. Look at verses 25 to 29. Jesus comes back and he says, Matthew says, he knew their thoughts and he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? 
I wonder what kind of inflection Jesus had in his voice. Was it, they just started off with a silly premise, and here he is just dismantling it thought by thought. Thought by thought. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by Satan, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And if the kingdom of God is here, then who's in charge? The king. The king of the Jews was standing right in front of him. And they challenged his authority. Who do you think you are? And then the gauntlet is thrown down. Look at verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. The gauntlet is thrown down. If you aren't for me, you're against me. If you blaspheme the work of the Holy Spirit, he continues, you won't be forgiven. The choice stood before them. Receive the king of the Jews or face God's judgment. And as Matthew's gospel unfolds, starting at verse 20, chapter 21 with, the, with the, grand, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which we've talked about a little bit, starting at that point, Jesus begins to openly challenge the Pharisees. And they reject him. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. I wish we had time to go through all these chapters, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25. It's all the rejection of the king. Chapter 21, verse 42. In the middle of this dialogue, in the middle of this back and forth with the Pharisees, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. You see, they had rejected the son of David. They had rejected the king of the Jews as he stood before them. And as a result, listen to this. As a result, the king of the Jews was rejecting them. I'm just going to let that sink in for a minute. The king of the Jews was rejecting them. Turn over to chapter 23. You see, when, when, we, re, when we come across truths like that, principles like that, we just think, well, how could God do that? God is loving and God is patient and God is... God, what do you mean God rejected them? We put our human characteristics over God and we don't understand that his wisdom is perfect, that his justice is perfect, that his judgment is perfect. Even his anger is perfect. In verse 37 of chapter 23, this is what Jesus said at the end of such a dialogue where they had rejected him and he, the king of the Jews, had rejected them. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to all to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? 
and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The king was rejecting the people. Turn over to Matthew, or Romans chapter 9. You wondered how long it would take me to get here. Romans chapter 9. Verse 30. The Apostle Paul writes this, and chapters 9, 10, 11 are all about this, this problem. They rejected the king. The king rejected them. But listen to this. Paul says in verse 30, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Look at chapter 10, verse 21. But of Israel, he says... All day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That's the relationship of the king of the Jews to his people, his subjects, his nation, his called out ones. Now let's look at the son of Abraham, because that's another way that Matthew describes it. And I think to myself, Woe to the person who hears God's pronouncement of rejection. Woe to the person who hears the words, I am moving my presence away from your life. Woe to the nation where God says, I am abandoning you. If the story ended there, there would not be any hope for the people of Israel, and there'd be no hope for you or I. None. But the story doesn't end there. And for that, we need to praise the Lord this morning. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, he says, This is the genealogy of the son of David and son of Abraham. Now you find aha moments in the strangest places in Scripture. You, you, when, when, God, when God sheds light on something, it's in the verse that just introduces a genealogy. There it is. An aha moment. So let's look closely. Let me ask you this question. Why did, why did Matthew write it the way he did? I love this. Why did he do it? He wrote, this is the son of David and the son of Abraham. So do you know your, your Jewish history, your people of Israel history? Do you know it? Who came first, Abraham or David? Abraham came first. In fact, Abraham is known as the father of the nation the father of the people of Israel. So Matthew was kind of all messed up that day or something, and he must have got ahead of himself, and he just wrote down son of David first, right? And he probably came along later and said, oh, what was I thinking? Bible doesn't work that way. Scripture doesn't work that way. 
What's the aha moment? Jesus, the king of glory, is also the king of the Jews, and as such he comes from David. Matthew is reminding his Jewish readers, this is the son of David, this is the royalty, this is the king that you've been waiting for. He's reminding his Jewish readers that God has not forgotten them. To the Jew first and then to the Gentile. But Jesus is also a son of Abraham. The promises, listen to this, the promises to David, and we could, we could give verses to this and we could support it and talk about this for a long time, but the promises to David are first of all Jewish. They're national promises. They are royal promises. David was promised an eternal throne, an eternal king, and an eternal kingdom. Whereas Abraham's promise, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the promises to Abraham were comprehensive. They were not relegated only to the people of Israel. His promise was for himself. His promise was for the nation of Israel. Indeed, that's where the birth of Israel came from. But his promise was also universal for all the people, for all the families of the earth, for all the nations of the earth, everyone would be blessed by the work of God in the people of Abraham. For the people of Abraham, for Abraham's promise, his blessing, God's blessing would be poured out on Israel so that the whole world would see who God is. And that's the aha for me. Jesus is the king of the Jews. He has come and he is indeed their king. He is their royalty. He is their monarch. He is their conquering warrior. But praise the Lord, it is not just for the people of Israel. He's the son of David. Yes, he's their king. He's your king if you're Jewish. But he's also the son of Abraham, which means that it has gone to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And I don't know if there's any people of Jewish descent in here, but I, I don't think so. That means that everyone in this room has received salvation through Jesus Christ as Lord because he first revealed himself to the people of Israel. And so Matthew opens his gospel and he says, this is the genealogy of the son of David and the son of Abraham because he's encompassing everything. God is faithful to his people. God will reveal himself to his people. God will lead his people. And by the way, he also will reveal himself to you, to the Gentiles. Thank you, Lord. But here's the deal. Israel abandoned their mission and their king. God turned from them. We see that in the gospel. We've seen that as we looked at the gospel of Matthew. God turned from them, and then he took the message to the world. But he hasn't forgotten them. If you're still in Romans, look in Romans chapter 11. Verse 11. You really need to read chapters 9, 10, and 11 to really grab a hold of this conversation. I wish we had time to do that. But look at verse 11, chapter 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, did God abandon them completely, permanently, forever? No. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, that's us, how much more will their full inclusion mean? 
Look over to verse 28. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. But just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also may now they, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. God has not we God Jesus rejected the people of Israel. They rejected him, he rejected them, but it wasn't permanent people. It wasn't permanent. You see, God has a plan for Israel. And if we get into prophecy, we understand that the tribulation period is all about the people of Israel and God continuing to restore them and bring them back to himself. But God says, what's, what's our job then? Our job as Christians is to make them jealous. Somebody gave the illustration of, of um, <clears throat> girlfriend, boyfriend, and all of a sudden the girlfriend goes a little cold and she just starts kind of mistreating the boyfriend a little bit. And all of a sudden their, their, their relationship is, is still, still getting engaged, still together, but it's not, not warm, it's not hot, it's not, it's not romantic, it's not, it's not what you design a boyfriend and girlfriend relationship to look like. And along comes a third party. Along comes another young lady. And all of a sudden, her affections are towards the guy. All of a sudden... His affections are turned towards her. And it's the same idea with the people of Israel. God is saying, I want, I want you, my church, my people, my called out ones, I want you to make them jealous of our relationship together. I want them to see what a dynamic relationship with God looks like. I want them to know what I have intended for them. And I want them to turn back to me because of what they see in you. That's what Paul is saying in chapters 9, 10, 11. God makes, wants to make them jealous. So what do we do with that? What do we do with these truths today? The, the, he, Jesus is the king of the Jews. The king of, the, a king of glory is the king of Jews, king of the Jews and the son of David. What do we do with that? I, let me throw out a few things here. I, and I, I made quite a long list of applications for this. But as I consider this, I keep coming back to this idea. Ready? It's not about us. It's not about us. We often, listen carefully, we often become so focused on our own salvation that we forget that God's plan is much bigger. He desires to save his people, Israel. He desires to save the nations, Caleb's going to talk about that next week. He desires to restore all things to himself. Even this morning, we read from Romans chapter 8 that even creation, all of creation, awaits the appearing of Jesus and awaits the completion of his plan in our lives, in, in, the, in the world. His plan is so much larger than our lives and our circumstances. It's not about you. It's not about me. Uh, there was a song a number of years ago that said when Jesus was dying on the cross, his, your name came across his mind. That's a lovely thought, isn't it? 
that he thought of you. I don't think it's true. I think Jesus was dying for the sins of the whole world. And I think, I think we too often... Okay, now you're going to walk away from here saying, Sindelar said our salvation doesn't matter. I, I, I'm not saying that. He did die for you. He knows your name. He knows where you live. He knows your circumstances. He knows all about you. It is all about you. It's a very personal decision to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's a very personal faith and a personal walking out of it. But brothers and sisters, that's not the end of the program. Genesis 12, 1-3 says, You are blessed to be a blessing. And God has a plan for the whole world. And in the middle of it, He has a plan for His people Israel. In Matthew's Beginning with Matthew 21 and, and moving forward, we see that the, the Messiah rejected the people of Israel, but just for a time. And one day he's going to fulfill his plan for the people of Israel. That's the bigger plan. And he wants to use us to do it. You see, it's not about us. <clears throat> and as I think about this, we, 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 our tendency might be to pray for for the Jews, pray for the nation of Israel. We need to pray for the nation of Israel. We need to be standing with them. But we can also pray for their neighbors. We can pray for the Palestinians. Why can we do that? Because, because he's the son of David and he's the son of Abraham. Of all nations. He's the king of the Jews. And the way he works with them is a reflection of what he's doing in our lives. He has given us promises of blessing and presence, just like he has done for Israel all these years, all these centuries. I will be your God. You will be my people. And this is what it means to walk in me. That's why he gave them the law. And Because of Israel, because of what God has done in the people of Israel and what he's laid out for them as to how to walk in, in him, we can look to Jesus and we can say that all of God's promises are yes and amen. Second Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. First Thessalonians 5 says, He who calls you is faithful, He will surely do it. How do I know that? Because He's done it with the people of Israel. And He will do it with the people of Israel. He is faithful. And if you don't believe me, watch what he does with the people of Israel. Jerusalem is the center of the global map, not Minnesota. Watch it. If we look to the people of Israel, we look to the story of Israel, we can, we can understand that our expectations for the king need to be God's expectations and not our expectations. What got them in trouble is that they walked around saying, oh, I don't think he fits that way or this way or this way or that way. As a king, he's not a conquering warrior. He's not dressed the way I think he should be. He's not, he's not doing the things that I think he should do. He's not... Brothers and sisters, we need to have our expectations set on what God says is his Savior, his Messiah. We need to align our lives with him. And that's where the, the people of Israel got it so wrong so often, is that they thought they would decide what God would look like. They thought they would decide how he operates and what he should do instead of looking to him. Just like the people of Israel, we have a choice to submit to the king. Just as he stood before the Pharisees, just as he stood before the people of Israel, just as, 
Just as Moses ended his life and said, as for me and my house. You decide who you serve. We face the same choice. Who will we serve? Will we submit to the king? We learn that from the people of Israel. Another thing that I think we learn from this story of the people of Israel and the king of, of the Jews is that there's a warning out there. There's a limit. And it brings judgment if we cross that limit. If we continue in disobedience, God will let us go without him. That's exactly the condemnation in Romans chapter 1. God may not bring down judgment immediately, but he will remove his presence and he'll let you go into the sin that you so eagerly desire. We cannot presume on his grace. King David said it himself, Oh God, in my sin, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And in the severest of judgment, we see Noah. We see the rich young ruler who walked away. We see the second coming of Jesus Christ when he draws the line and he says, in the line and he says, this is the end. If you are for me, if you are against me, this is the end. We cannot presume on God's grace as the people of Israel did. And we always need to remember, if we look at the people of Israel, and what God is doing with them, he is going to see it through. What does that mean for us? The offer of restoration is always there for us. Come back. Come back. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you as, as, as hens to the... Uh, I forget what he said. Help me out. I've talked too long. My brain has turned to mush. Yours has too, probably. As a hen gathers her chicks. God desires that for you too. If you're walking in disobedience today, take lesson from the people of Israel. God is calling you back. His grace is there for you. Let me close with this as the worship team comes forward. We know from Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that those who curse Israel will be cursed and those who bless Israel will be blessed. And I think we as followers of Christ need to be people who bless Israel. Psalm 122 says this, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. I, I was reading a book recently, and one of the conclusions that they came to in this history of Israel was that every mission's budget of every church should include something that supports the people of Israel, that ministers to the people of Israel. And I believe that should be true of us. We need to be blessing the people of Israel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your, your faithfulness with a, a stubborn and stiff-necked people. And we look to the people of Israel, we looked at the example of, of their obedience and their disobedience, and we look at your faithfulness, and we realize that there we go. We have been stubborn. We are stiff-necked ourselves, and we can learn from them as they, as they lean back into you. Thank you for the wonderful, the wonderful choice we have of following after you and the opportunity we have to be restored by you. 
We pray that your plan for Israel would come to conclusion that you would indeed restore your people Israel to relationship with you. We thank you for the wonderful promise that at the end of the age, they will be saved. Lord, let us be part of that. If we want to be part of your plan, if we want to walk with you, then let us walk with you in every way. Let us be a part of what you're already doing, supporting the people of Israel. So Lord, find us faithful. Find us worshiping the son of David, the king of the Jews, the son of Abraham. In your name we pray. Amen. Please stand and sing with us.